We turn our attention this morning to Paul's letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, or maybe you don't have a Bible of your own, so you can, you can find this either on your electronic device that's with you, or printed in the bulletins which are available at the back of the room. The gospel changes everything. Your beliefs, your behaviors, your attitudes. For Christians in the earliest centuries of the church, belief in Jesus Christ impacted their jobs, their families, every relationship they have. Now, because we live in a culture, Western culture, impacted by centuries of the influence of Christianity, we might, we might be tempted to sort of water down or, or look, overlook how shocking the claims of Christianity are. That God made the world good, and yet in our rebellion against God, we have broken ourselves. We have broken the world. We have broken our relationships. We now chase after things of this life, and yet God did not abandon us, but sent his Son, the very Son of God, born of a virgin, to die in our place. And God raised this Son from the dead, and he now wears the title, the name which is above every name. He is declared by the resurrection to be the Lord. And that means that he has authority over every aspect of our lives. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to look at the, the, the instances of, of radical change that would have set apart Christians reading the New Testament. That would have shown them to be distinct from the world around them. The ways in which the gospel, the good news of what God has done, should change their lives. And so these truths, the commands of God then, should make us distinct today. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is writing a letter to a group of new believers. Some of whom, yes, had grown up hearing the Old Testament stories of God's faithfulness, but most, most were brand new to the faith. They were previously what we today would call pagans. They had no knowledge of the true God. And in this letter, he reminds them of something they'd already been taught but a problem for them, a willingness to walk after the Lord, to pursue holiness, to abstain from sexual immorality. So listen to the instructions that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word into our lives. Father in heaven, we ask that as we wrestle with our own hearts, with our own passions and desires, that you would empower us by the strength of your spirit. 
Lord, you have given us the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. You've promised our sanctification that we would become more and more like Christ as we pursue you in holiness. You have empowered us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I ask that this morning we would be honest with you, with ourselves and with one another about our great need for you. Father, we rejoice in the good news that is announced in Thessalonians, that Jesus is the Savior who takes away your wrath, who paid the full penalty for our sins. And so, Lord, give us hope as we listen to your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was the type of thinking that had been around for centuries. A first century author spoke bluntly about his sexual expectations. We have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our daily needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. Or did you hear his expectations? Shared in the ancient world, we have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our daily needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. I mean, you know, boys will be boys. Perhaps we would update this a little bit today. We have affairs for our enjoyment, images to serve our daily needs, and wives to keep us happy. Cicero, who spent time in Thessalonica, the city in which the believers, the church to which Paul is writing, he warned anyone who would try and impose moral restrictions. He said, let not pleasure be forbidden. I mean, as long as nobody gets hurt. I mean, he added that caveat. I mean, he sounds like a modern thinker. You should be able to do whatever you want. I mean, he, yes, when he talks about not harming anyone, he just means the rich freedmen of society. Everyone else was there for their pleasure, for their taking. Their harm wasn't considered. Maybe we would say it today, let not pleasure be forbidden as long as no one gets hurt. As long as they consent, what does it matter what two adults want to do? Well, actually, for Cicero, it, it, being an adult didn't matter at all. I mean, you could keep children around just for your own pleasure, especially if you had enough money to give them an education. I mean, after all, it would be good for them, wouldn't it? Sex sells. The cults of the city of Thessalonica employed prostitutes and forced slaves into sexual rituals. It was an expected part of your daily life. And for most people, sex had nothing to do with morality. It was just an animal passion, a pleasure to be, to, to, to be fulfilled. There were few pro prohibitions in the ancient world regarding sex, and even the prohibitions were easy to overlook. But when Paul writes to the church, he expects a fundamental change. The apostle expects that the declaration, Jesus is Lord, will impact every part of a person's life, including his or her sexual desires and behaviors. Paul expects fundamental change. Look, look back with me at, the, at the, the way that he writes to the church. 
he's, he's built the argument, and admittedly, each, each week during this series, we're going to kind of jump into the middle of, of the passage. So when I say, finally, there in verse 1, you, you don't know what came before it. He's set up the hope of the gospel, his desire that the ministry of, of Christ would continue to work in them and, and through them. And now he brings them some specific instructions. So verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. He's, he's demanding and commanding that they respond because of the, because of the truth that Jesus is Lord. In verse 2, he, he, he's saying, for you know what instructions we gave you. I, what you're about to hear isn't brand new. I told you all of this before. You, you know that when you came to faith in Christ, it was going to radically alter everything about who you used to be. It was going to mean a change in the way you acted, in the way you behaved. And so, so for you know, verse 2, what instructions we gave you, instructions that came through the Lord Jesus. And what is the command? It's verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, a a broad biblical category. That if we traced it through Scripture, we would see that it prohibits fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution. It deals not only with the actions, but the very passions of the heart the very attitudes, even the the secret thoughts of our lives. But the command of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And Paul is writing with the authority of God. This isn't just some, some grumpy old man saying, well, you know what, I think we'd get along better if you follow my rules. No, these are the very commands of the Lord Jesus. This is the, the command that Jesus brings. It's, it's verse 1, how you ought to walk to please God. It's an expectation that your behavior, it comes with commands. There's an ought. You ought to do this. You have to do this. You are required to do this. Because God is the creator, the sustainer, because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, declared to be Lord, then he has the authority to place expectations and commands upon you. Because this is verse 2, or verse 3, the will of God. This is the very command, the very desire of God. It's right because it was given to you by God, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who loves you and cares for you. But, but it comes with, with not only the, the, the command of God, but even, even in a sense here, the warning of God. Because while, while you and I might be confused by the phrase because of blockbuster movies, the, verse 6 says, the Lord is an avenger. The Lord is the one who will do what is right. The Lord is the one who will bring justice. The Lord is the one who sees what has been done, how you have been harmed, and he, on the day when Jesus Christ returns, will call each person to an account. So it's God, verse 7, who has called you. It is a command that if you disregard verse 8, you're disregarding not the instructions of a man, not merely the instructions of an apostle, an apostle, you are disregarding the commands of God. The very one who gave you his Holy Spirit, who's empowered you to live for him. Now I know that, that perhaps you, you, you hear this kind of command and you think, ah, I mean, God really does seem like kind of an old fuddy-duddy. I mean, like he's a killjoy. He just wants to take the fun out of life. I mean, there's so little enjoyment in life. 
when I'm stuck home alone in my house, why would God take away what little fun I could have? That's the way we might be tempted to think, that, that God is trying to mess up the fun things that you found. And yet, Scripture presents it to us as, as not, God, not God taking away from us that which is for our good, but God pointing us in the direction of our, our ultimate good. God taking away from us and prohibiting that which will harm us and hurt us. Maybe, maybe God knows what's best for us. Maybe if he made us, then he can give us instructions on the way that we should live. Now, you've heard me reference the television show MASH recently. I've been watching it. I think it's the nostalgia of helping my dad pack up and, and move that I've been, I've been re- re-watching the, the, the episodes. And there's, there's, uh, there's a, a scene in which an unexploded bomb, this is a television show set during the Korean War. It's a mobile, armored, or mobile army surgical hospital. So these are doctors right behind the front lines, basically just trying to patch somebody up to get them to a real hospital for recovery. And a bomb falls into the compound, but it doesn't explode, which causes quite a bit of panic. But they, when they get close to it, they can hear that it's actually still ticking. Now, I have no idea about the historical veracity of whether bombs worked like that in the Korean War, but it works on television. So the whole, the whole compound is, is panicked. And, and, and the Colonel, Henry Blake, he calls around. He's on the radio trying to figure out who knows what kind of bomb this is. It, it looks like it's American, so we need to know how to defuse it. And finally, they get the instructions. So he sends out his two most steady-handed surgeons because they're going to have to perform surgery now on this bomb. They're going to have to be, be, be steady-handed to do it. And so he says, the, the colonel tells his, his doctors, look, I'm going to be here in the bunker. Just defuse the bomb and then run like mad. So he, he, he's reading now from the instructions. First, you need a wrench. Now place it gently on the nut just above the locking ring and loosen now, these are doctors that if you'd given them instructions on, on the internal organs of the body, it would have made sense, but, but they're looking at it and, and just guessing. Now, rotate the locking ring counterclockwise. Now, fully remove the tail assembly and carefully cut the wires leading to the clockwork fuse at the head. So the doctors carefully do this. But first, remove the fuse. It's too late. The, the first instruction has come last. So they take off running. The bomb explodes, which thankfully is not filled with explosives, but with propaganda. So they're just showered in leaflets and no one is harmed. But, but to put the instructions in the wrong order. And, and, and maybe in some sense, that's, that's what you feel like when you, when you read the Bible. That like, it just feels like it's, it's messed up. It doesn't really match the world that you live in. Yes, maybe it would have worked a long time ago. But, but God's instructions don't really work here. He doesn't really seem to know what he's doing. But, but if the, the one who gives you the instructions, unlike the fictional account on television, if the one who gives you the instructions knows what he's doing and cares about you, then you can trust what he tells you, that it really is for your good. But, but that illustration also forces us to, to remember that we have to keep things in the right order. That first instruction should have come first. Before you carefully cut the wires, first remove the fuse. And, 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 and we might be tempted when we read through Thessalonians, particularly because I've kind of dropped us in on chapter 4. We might be tempted to read it this way, 
that if we do what God commands, then we can make ourselves right with God. First, we might think, if I can walk in obedience, then I can merit favor with God. Because we've just jumped in and I've started with commands. And so if we start here with commands, then it seems like that's the very first thing. But, but just notice the chapter number. We're in chapter 4, which means prior instructions and even good news has come. See, Paul is saying to them, not first make yourselves right or obey so that God will love you. It's actually flipped. He says, first, God has rescued you from your sin. God has freed you from your sinful passions. So now, live in obedience to him. And you see, if you get, the, if you get that order mixed up, then you better run. And, and actually, the word that they use in the episode is H-E-L-L. It was much scarier. Because, but the reality is, if we, that you should run like mad. You should run as if, because if you get the order mixed up here, then that's actually the, the real dilemma. If you think you can fix yourself, you can now obey God and it will, it will demand that God give you forgiveness, then you better run like mad. Because there is a real danger that you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself. See, see Paul, in the, in the first chapter, started with the grace and peace given to us by Christ. Look back at, at chapter 1 if you have a Bible in front of you, and, and look at the very last verse of chapter 1. That we are the ones who have turned to God, the last two verses, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And now, chapter 1, verse 10. And we wait for, the, for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, but first, Jesus rescued you from your sins. So now, chapter 4, walk in a way that pleases God. Because you know how you ought to walk to please God. It's not that you walk like this, that you do these things, and then you, and then you will have God's favor. No, because you have been forgiven, because God has raised Jesus from the dead, because Jesus is declared to be Lord, now you can live following after him. See, Paul writes to the believers in Thessalonica, telling them that he, that he, he writes about their sexual integrity with the authority of God. But, but notice the argument is, isn't, doesn't just stop with the God says it, therefore I do it. He, he, he actually explains to them that to, that to walk in sexual integrity, that to flee, abstain from sexual immorality, is actually for the good of others. It allows them to serve one another. I mean, just, just notice the language he uses. Look, look again at verse 1. He says, finally then, brothers. Or we could rightly translate it into English, finally, brothers and sisters. He's describing the community of faith, the church, as a family. That we are united to God and therefore united to one another in relationship. In, in verse 4, he says that, that we are controlling ourselves, our own bodies, in holiness and honor. That, that we are concerned with the way our behavior reflects upon others. That it would bring honor to ourselves and to others. And, and, and then he's explicit in verse 6. See to it that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. See, your sexual integrity matters because of your relationships with the people around you, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Sexual integrity honors God and it serves others. Pastor and counselor Paul Tripp, he, he, he describes God's design for sexuality. He says it's, it, the, the true sexual integrity is meant to be, be, be fulfilled in a committed, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. He, Pastor Tripp says, sex is protected and purified by this commitment to tender, faithful, self-sacrificing, other-serving love. See, the reason that Scripture puts these prohibitions on sexual behavior is not to keep you from having fun, but to actually bring you real and lasting joy and pleasure by placing sexual action and behavior within the commitment of marriage, within the loving relationship, so that sex is not about you satisfying yourself, but about serving your spouse. It, it allows you to see that, that your desires aren't the most important issue at hand. You are serving God, the very commands of God. If you disregard them, you're disregarding God. You are serving one another, a brother or sister in Christ. That you, if you transgress, then you would wrong one another. See, God is giving us opportunity to use our lives even our bodies, the way we control ourselves for the good of those around us. Now, that was countercultural in the first century. It's still countercultural today because that's been countercultural all along since Adam and Eve first grasped for the fruit and said, well, I will take what is mine. And that's the way we treat sex. This is for me. This is for my pleasure. This is for my satisfaction. And God is saying, that's never how it was designed. It was designed to, to, to strengthen a marriage relationship. It was designed to bring forth the joy of, of the, the fulfillment of the command of God that, to be fruitful and multiply. Sex was always about serving another and honoring God in your integrity. But, but Paul doesn't, doesn't only say that it's for the good of others. He He's even willing to, to, to press against our selfishness by saying that sexual integrity is for our own good. L look again at verse 3. When he gives the, the, the direct command that you abstain from sexual immorality. Look at the way that he sets it up in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now I know sometimes as preachers we like to use big words because it makes us sound smart. It proves that all those years of school were worth something. But, but this is one of those big words that is worth every one of us understanding. Sanctification. That God will sanctify each one of us. That God will make us holy. That God will wash away our sins. And that God will purify us. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you would become like Christ that you would grow more and more, as verse 1, verse 1 says, more and more in holiness. That your life would be changed. Yes, there's a radical disruption of your life when you bow the knee and declare Jesus as Lord, your sins forgiven, but your heart still leans toward sin. And so as you grow in the gospel, as you, as you walk with God, then you more and more are made holy. It's the continuing work of God. Your cooperation in pursuing in obedience, your holiness. That you would control your own body in holiness 
and honor. That, that language of holy is, is repeated multiple times in this passage because that's the, the, the very word that's at the root of sanctification. The holiness then of verse 4. The holiness repeated in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. See, the, the biggest danger to us when it comes to, to broken sexuality is not what the culture tells us. Yes, there is a danger in living in a culture that, that just says sex is everything and your life is meaningless without it, and then at the same time says, well, sex is nothing because you can trade it for whatever, with whomever, whenever. I mean, yes, we, we, there is a danger in, in accepting the, the cultural standards. But the biggest danger Paul is warning about is not what they say about the gospel or what you and I would have said about the gospel if we weren't Christians or what we used to say before we came to Christ. The biggest danger to your sexual integrity is your own heart. It's your own desires. That's why Paul says that, that each of you, verse 4, each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. So you and I, if, if we chase after our own passions, then we might be temporarily satisfied. But if you're using the, the gift that God has given in a way that God is telling you not to, then it will ultimately lead to your harm. Because the protections that God has given of, of marriage are, are removed when we chase after our own sexual desires. Yes, we as Christians can pursue opportunities to change the expectations of our culture. If you have a, a job as a, a, an educator or you have a, a job as an entertainer, then, then the way in which you, you speak to children about these issues, the way in which you create art and culture will, will be shaped by your Christian faith. But, but our, our primary objective is not to change what the world says or sees, but to change our own hearts, to confront ourselves. Now, this does mean that if you... Uh, if you always just watch whatever everyone, well, I was going to say whatever everyone talks at the water cooler, but there are no water coolers anymore, and you're not allowed to talk to people if, you, if there was still a, a water cooler there. But, but if, if, if your entertainment choices match exactly what your neighbors are watching and thinking about, then you probably need to, to challenge your own heart. If, if you never stop and turn something off and say, oh, this is much worse than I anticipated, then you probably are just going by the standards of culture. And now, now some of you maybe are smart enough to do a little research even before you start the program to know, oh yeah, there's no reason to watch that. And, and maybe just reading the article would, would make you as knowledgeable or even more knowledgeable at the water cooler conversation where you say, well, I haven't seen it, but I, but I have been you know, hearing some things about it. Uh, where, and, and, and it's not even just the explicit content that's dangerous to our hearts. It's the, it's the underlying motives and desires. We, we as a family, were watching a, a movie, a historical uh, drama. And they invented a, a character to create a love interest. Now, it wasn't so much the, the, the romantic or passionate scenes that were most dangerous, because we could actually, like, just, you know, skip those. It was the whole setup of the scene. That, that we, as viewers, were rooting against this woman's marriage. Because, after all, her husband was miserable. And this new guy... This new guy is great. I mean, just, I mean, look at them. It's obvious. But then, I mean, the husband is, 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 is terrible, and this new guy gives her whatever she wants. I mean, so the, the, very, the very way the story was structured was, was shaping our hearts to say, oh, 
adultery is freedom. And yet that's a lie. The solution for a, for a broken or difficult marriage is not to, to walk away and find satisfaction in images online or in the relationship with someone you work with. No, real freedom is, is not to chase after your lusts, verse 5, not to pursue the passionate lusts of your heart. Real freedom is to have control over those lusts because you're oriented to a greater desire, a greater passion. Your love of God, that he is the Lord, the one who has the right to command you, and yet the one who has done everything for you. Uh, Pastor Tripp, I, I mentioned his, his definition for us of the way sexuality should work within a committed marriage relationship that is meant to be self-sacrificing, other service love. He says that we can live in freedom when we honor Jesus as king. See, instead of being a slave to your passions, you have control over your passions. Because there are, there are greater desires that orient your heart. The temporary desires of this life, whether for sex or stuff or power or pleasure, are, are nothing compared to your greater desires of honoring Jesus Christ. And so when the warning against judgment comes to the church, that whoever, verse 8, disregards these commands, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit, the warning that the Lord is an avenger, the one who will bring judgment, it should, yes, frighten us if we're chasing our own passions and desires, if we haven't confessed our sins. But remember what we read back in chapter 1. Yes, the, chapter 4, the Lord is an avenger, his wrath is coming, but chapter 1... Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And how did he do this? Jesus, born of a virgin, born a purified birth. A miraculous birth to separate him from the sin of those who had come before. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. Jesus, who in his lifetime never married, never did what his ancient culture would have said was necessary to be human, experienced the joy and satisfaction of sex, never did what our culture demands, that you should just give yourself over to your passions. And yet Jesus, instead of giving himself over to his own passions, to, to, he, he, he withstood temptation and was passionate about the commands of God, the will of God. And Jesus frees us from the wrath that is to come because he gave himself on the cross. Jesus, stripped of all honor and dignity, led out to the cross, bleeding and broken, nailed to the cross. Uh, uh, the, the cross, a symbol of great shame. It, it's, it's the worst form of torture that the world could come up with. A public display of all of his brokenness and frailty. And this one on the cross is the one that we declare to be Lord. Because in his humility, in his sacrifice, in his love, he gave everything for us. And in the power of God, we see Jesus, the one broken on the cross, the one who died for our sins. In the power of God, we see him raised from the dead and declared to be Lord. And so finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask, we urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received the truth, that you ought to walk and please God. Just as you are doing, you do so more and more. See, by the grace of God, 
brothers and sisters, we can live with integrity. We can find forgiveness for our brokenness. For each one of us is broken by our sin. But in Christ, we can be rescued and redeemed. What you once were does not define who you now are. Your identity is not in what you used to do or what someone did to you. Your identity is found in what Jesus Christ has done for you. The Son of God gave his life for you. And so this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you pursue the love and care of your brothers and sisters in the church and in your family, that you find hope in the gospel of Jesus, our Savior. Let's come to God now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, for the hope of the gospel. Lord, in the power of your word, you show us the the brokenness of our our rebellion against you. The sin that we have, the, the sin and shame that we have brought upon ourselves. The guilt that is ours because of our, our sin. And so, Lord, for those who, who feel the weight of shame, who feel powerless today to turn and follow you, Lord, give your spirit to bring new life where there was only spiritual death. Lord, give freedom to, to brothers and sisters in the gospel who come to you asking for help. Lord, transform each one of us so that we find our hope in Jesus, the one who died for our sins, the one who's been raised from the dead. Father, we come declaring Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. Amen.